it's not about us. And we're here to glorify you this morning. Thank you for being here. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence within us. And may your presence speak through me to build your church. Amen. You did a better job worshiping. I did a better job picking out songs. Got you all excited and kind of brought you down, you know. And so, uh, before I begin, though, I did want to do this. And so, um, it is Mother's Day, and I thought, I'm not going to pass around a mic, but I'd like for anybody that want to share maybe some memories of your mother or to thank your mothers and so on, and just, you know, for the next five, ten minutes or so. So, whoever wants to, just raise your hand, and I'll pick you by hand, and just. Okay, spontaneously, anything you want to share to honor your mother. Anybody? A little girl wearing a black hat, maybe? I'm joking, I'm joking. And this is being recorded so your mothers are watching, so you could be in trouble if you don't say something. Good, go ahead. No, you can just say it where you are, so... Yep. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. It's, I remember it's so funny because they get snow here. You don't have the equipment; it just gets bogs everything down. But in Pennsylvania, in that area, they you have a foot of snow. You're still going to church. I mean, that's just what you did, uh, and so on. And um, who else would like to share something about your mother or memory or anything? Go ahead, Carol. Good. Richard. Yeah. Absolutely. Good. What'd you say? He misses the hugs. Miss the hugs. Yes. Yes. Debbie? Talking about Jesus, yeah. My mother was a missionary. She traveled a thousand miles north from her home state, learned a new language, and lived on the mission field, served God. Every Saturday night, there was fasting and prayer in the church. And for years and years, my mother fasted Saturday evenings and prayed for her family and to new places and serve God, and they set an example 
Amen. Yeah, apart from uh, Jesus Christ, my mother has been the main spiritual influence in my life, easily, by far. So, Don? You had a mother? You had a mother? You did? Absolutely. And deservedly so, right? Yeah. yeah. Very good. Anyone else? One more? Good. She had like dinner ready by five or six. It was always ready. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. Never cussed. Very good. Well, I thought we would just would do something like that, and I didn't want to pass around a mic just so I could we could hear and. So what we're talking about, believe it or not, today ties into uh, being a mother, and so um, what we're going to talk about is what the Bible says about, I think I put this up here, Uh, it's supposed to be women, not woman, women preaching, okay? It's kind of a hot button topic within the church, and I'll I'll get to that in a moment here, but I was thinking about this, Um, I was reading my Bible uh, last week, and I'd forgotten what 1 Corinthians 14, you know, 33 says, it's because of the culture we live in, in that, I was just taken back, that it is, it says that it's, it's shameful for a woman, you know, to preach in a church, or, or, you know, to be in leadership in a church, and I was like, okay, um, that's pretty strong language, and I looked it up, and it, it, it means, shameful means it's a disgrace, well, well why is that, Right? Why is that the case? Because you're seeing so many arise in women preachers. And I thought to myself, 
growing up in the church, as many of you have as well, and I was thinking back as I wrote this down, I've attended a wide variety of churches. Uh, I was born in 1969, so in the 70s, one of my first memories, we were living in Connecticut, I attended, I believe it was a Methodist church. And then during the 1980s, my family attended an independent charismatic church that met in a school in Michigan, a Baptist church, probably with the Southern Baptist Convention, or denomination in Louisiana, two independent startup churches with charismatic leanings, one that met in a school and one that met in a house, and both those churches were in Texas, uh, two Presbyterian churches, and a Wesleyan church in Ohio. That was the 80s. Uh, during the 1990s, I attended an independent church that was anti-charismatic, and a Christian and Missionary Alliance church that was in Bowling Green, Ohio. In the 2000s, I attended uh, two independent churches that were mildly charismatic and actually attended a Mennonite church. I pastored that church. So it's safe to say that I have a, a pretty diverse experience of churches. Now, each church obviously was unique, but they all had two things in common. Uh, one was that they were conservative, and two, I never saw a woman in leadership or a woman preach. I never saw that. In fact, as I recall, the, the leadership of these churches, as best as I can remember, they were exclusively male. Now, I suppose that was my experience because, you know, what the Bible teaches about women in, in preaching, for example. I never really studied it, okay? I just tradition, right? You just, that's what you grew up with. You think about, though, I thought, well, after all, in the Old Testament, there was never a female priest. There was never an authorized female king or queen. There was never a female prophet with an ongoing prophetic ministry, like, say, like Elijah or Jeremiah. No book in the Old Testament was written by a woman, and there was never any portion of an Old Testament book written by a woman. Men seemed to always fill those roles. Now, some may argue that about the book of Ruth. What about that? But it doesn't identify it as an author, and the best scholarship and tradition tells it was written by who? Samuel the prophet. Okay? Now, on occasion, there were some women in the Old Testament that spoke for God. For example, remember Miriam, sister of Moses? Uh, she was called even a prophetess, but her ministry was obviously more music-oriented, right? The Song of Moses... In the absence of a man, the Lord uh, used Deborah as a judge to, to bring about his will on one occasion, but when it came to going to war with the enemies, what did she do? She chose a man, Barak, to lead the troops. And so you just can't find any woman as a spiritual leader in an ongoing ministry in, in the Old Testament. So if you go to the New Testament, is, was there ever a female apostle? or a female prophet, you don't really find those. There was never a, a woman pastor or elder. No New Testament book was written by a woman. No sermon is ever recorded from a woman. But the first recorded instance of women serving as clergy in the church is from what? Remember this from last week? 150 AD, when the excommunicated Gnostic heretic Marcion, or Marcion, however you say it, started his own false church and appointed women as priests and bishops. When you look back in the history of the church, I'm like, for the most part, it's always followed the biblical teaching that reserved the leadership positions in the church to men. Now, there was a small movement in the early 20th century of women in the top leadership of churches. For example, does anyone know this? The International Church of the Four Square Gospel. Who led that? Church history people here? You'll recognize the name. Amy Simple McPherson? It was 1884 to 1944. She preached in Los, in Los Angeles. She had a huge congregation, about 5,000 people. A Pentecostal at that point in time also, or around that time, had started sanctioning women preaching. And of course, as you'd expect, the liberal or progressive churches, they welcomed women into the clergy as an outgrowth of the social gospel, the liberating principles of that gospel. But the real kicker was in 1989, this is fascinating. When history was made, 
On February 11th, 1989, Reverend Barbara C. Harris, I was hoping Barbara was going to be here, Debbie, kind of make poke fun at her, but Barbara C. Harris was consecrated a bishop of the Episcopal Church in the Diocese of Massachusetts. She was the first female bishop in the history of Anglicanism. Anglicanism goes back, folks, to the Synod of Whitby in 664 AD. Okay? So if you do the math, you discover that it took 1,325 years for the first woman to be recognized or ordained in the Anglican church. So again, as you look at church history, it's kind of always recognized that church leadership positions reserved for men. Why? Well, I assumed that it's because it's what the Bible teaches. One be notes to me, this teaching of Scripture was under attack from within the church. In 1993, I bought the book, uh, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I've, I've referenced this from talking about masculinity and femininity. A response to evangelical feminism. And this book was a 1993 Christian Today Book of the Year. Obviously, now I know something was going on. Feminism, I knew about the feminist movement. Now, you attach the word evangelical in front of it. Something was happening within the evangelical church, which is typically conservative. There was a, a movement of feminism happening there. And this book was in response to that back in 1993. In this book, unbeknownst to me, as a young Christian, I was introduced to complementarianism and egalitarianism. And complementarianism is the view that women are limited regarding leadership roles in the church, such as an elder or a pastor. And just to put your mind at ease, yes, women can serve as deacons. There was an example of a deaconess in the New Testament, okay? But these positions are reserved for elder or pastor. Just so you know, there are people that were coming to this church and almost six years ago in June of 2016 when I was being interviewed, I had some questions from some people on the Sunday I preached, remember it was 93 degrees, it was super hot, and some women cornered me and were asking me about my pos position on this issue, and I stated what the position of this church is, which is it's a complementarian church, and I never saw those women again. They left over this issue. Well, the egalitarian position is the view that women can serve in all forms of church leadership, including ordination as pastors. And little did I know that when I bought that book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, I was being introduced to a battle that had been raging in the church for years. And obviously, if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, and if Paul says it's a disgrace or a shame for a woman to, to be in a, you know, this leadership position in a church, that's a pretty serious issue, right? I had never studied it before. And while I was attending all the churches starting in the 1970s, an aggressive movement was underway that put women to leadership positions in churches. And among more conservative and traditional denominations, the entrance of women into the clergy was consistently resisted until the decade of the 70s. I don't know if you knew that or not. I didn't. But what happened in the 1970s? Well, church historians, I looked this up. I didn't know this. They, of course, point to the feminist movement. How effective has this movement been in changing America's views on women preaching, or women in the church? Well, on October 19th, 2018, just almost four years ago, uh, Stephanie Martin wrote an article called Have MDiv Will Preach, a study on the growth of female pastors. She wrote that America's two largest denominations, do you know what they are, out of curiosity? Southern Baptist and the Catholic Church. Um, they have virtually no clergywomen, according to Stephanie Martin. But the liberal or mainline, some mainline denominations and some evangelical conservative churches have begun to embrace women preachers. Um, I put this up here from her article. You can see it's pretty self-explanatory here, but look at that. The percentage of clergywomen that tripled from 1994, the year after I bought that book, by the way, in the Episcopal Church, the Lutheran Church, and in the Assemblies of God Church. Now, I would consider the Assemblies of God at least a conservative church, okay? But you can see that clergywomen tripled. They're doubled in the Methodist, the Christian Church, and the Brethren Church. Look at this one here as well. 
you can see that. And so a survey was conducted in 2017 that revealed, well, listen to this now, 80% of Americans are comfortable with a female pastor. You go back 30, 40 years, no, that would never have been the case. Uh, 62% of practicing Christians are open to women pastors. 40% of evangelicals are fine with women pastors. Let me put it more succinctly. In 1960, 2% of clergy were women. Today, 27% of clergy across this country are women. And I say again, one would expect more liberal maybe or progressive or mainline churches to gravitate towards this new position, but conservative churches? I think it's clear that the women's movement was effectively infiltrated the last segment of resistance in the body of Christ, the evangelical conservative church. But I believe this issue goes deeper than just the women's movement. There is ongoing confusion. I was confused. I'd never studied it. I didn't know. I would read a passage occasionally, never think much of it. But there's just growing confusion. What does the Bible actually say about women preaching? Well, let's take a look at it this morning. I want to address this issue in part by looking at a very clear yet controversial passage found in 1 Timothy. You guys are probably familiar with this, but get your Bibles out and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Start at verse 9. Now, when you read this passage, it seems pretty clear that the Bible teaches a complementarian position, that women are limited regarding leadership roles in the church, such as elder or pastor, okay? Because if you look out in the body of Christ today, in the conservative movements, you see a lot of female pastors. Well, how'd they get to this position? And let's be honest with you, there are women who are gifted to lead and to teach. And they're very good at it. 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 9. Likewise, as the Apostle Paul speaking, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to ex- exercise authority over a man, whether she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. But just so you know, Paul's writing to Timothy to help him get the churches in order. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. He says this, I write, Paul's writing to Timothy, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So in other words, Paul's saying this to Timothy specifically, I'm writing this letter to you so that you know how to conduct things in the church consistent with the truth revealed in the word of God. And throughout this letter, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and after 1 Timothy chapter 2, on both sides of the verse, Paul gives instruction for the life of the church. But the clear and thus controversial verses are verses 11 to 14. Let's read those again. And it's kind of hard to read, isn't it? Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, whether she is to remain quiet. For Adam was foreign first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor or a sinner. That's what the transgressor means. Now, since Paul references the creation narrative, there's the words, guys, narrative, the story. Let's go back to Genesis so we can get the proper context for 1 Timothy. Now, we all know the story. Adam and Eve were created in the garden in innocence. They were without sin. They did not know guilt or shame. 
But Satan, in the form of a serpent, deceives Eve, convinces her to, to come out from under the protection of Adam, to usurp his role as a leader, and disobey God by eating the forbidden fruit. Adam, who was with her, follows her lead and sins, and the whole human race is catapulted into corruption. Now, the woman is cursed in chapter 3, verse 16. Remember this verse? To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Mothers, you've obviously given birth to children. Have you ever wondered how painful it was if they ever had a child without, with limited pain? I know watching my wife give birth, that is not something I want to go through. Thank God for epidurals, right? In pain, you will bring forth children. Notice I did not get an amen from the congregation on that one. <laughs> Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So what we see now is universal pain in childbirth. But the second half of the curse is equally universal. That's what I want you to catch. The woman has a desire toward her husband. He has to rule over her now. The question is, what desire is this? Well, we find out in Genesis 4, 7. Remember this verse? Cain has brought an unacceptable sacrifice to God. It's rejected, so what does he do? He pouts, so God says to him, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So there's a sense of self-control that Cain has to demonstrate regarding sin. Now, how does it tie into the curse of Genesis 3.16? Well, the last half of 4.7, and its desire is for you, but you must master it, is almost identical in language to the last half of Genesis 3.16. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. It refers to the woman's sinful desire to dominate or control her husband. We've gone over this before. I don't need to spend much more time on this. So as a result of the fall of man attributed to Adam, because of a now corrupted heart, the woman will desire to upset the divine order of authority and submission. Because remember, Adam is the head, and the woman is what? The helper, right? And she's going to want to dominate her husband, and this is the universal reality in marriage. The woman will desire to control, the man will have to rule over her. And it is as universal as pain and childbearing. And again, notice I'm not getting an amen from the congregation on that one either. <sighs> Folks, this is why there is constantly the effort of women to overthrow the authority of their husbands or the authority of just men in culture. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, the creation story teaches us much more, though, and I haven't gotten this deep with you, and I want to do that this morning to give you some insight that might help you understand 1 Timothy. I want to share with you what I learned in my sermon preparation about the fall of man. God created Adam, but it was not good that he was alone, right? So what did he do? He took a rib out of Adam, he made a woman, and the woman was to be Adam's helper. Now he presents her to Adam and he is thrilled. Okay? The pain of loneliness is now gone. I mean, in a utopian world, to, for something not to be right, to be lonely, that was a foreign feeling for him, to have pain. It, there was no other pain but this pain of loneliness. But it's now gone. And in his excitement, he recognized the woman's uniqueness. She is just like me. And immediately, what does he do? He names her a sign of his love and ownership of her. This is exactly what happens when parents have a child, right? A welling up of love in their hearts followed by the naming of the child. Love and ownership. He says this in Genesis 2.23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now the naming comes. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The level of intimacy that the two of them must have had was beyond anything we can probably ever imagine. Why do I say that? Because they were created in what? Innocence. They did not know guilt. 
or shame. Remember, they were naked and there was no shame there. So the level of intimacy and all that was physical, emotional, spiritual, was beyond anything that anyone has ever experienced. That is unique to those two at this point in time in history. And their bodies hadn't had taken on the effects of sin, and so there was a, a real closeness, a real deep love. Dare I say an unconditional love. Now go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 13. Paul refers to God's created order as a reason for female submission. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. We know that. This is God's divine order. But not only was this God's creative design, this design was affirmed in the fall of man. Look at verse 14. For Adam was formed first in Eve, that's creation. Now we get to the fall of man. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, if you study this, this is a severe warning to women. What do I mean by that? Well, what happened when Eve stepped out from under the protection of Adam? She was attacked, but she became vulnerable. You see that? Namely, to deception, to sin. You've heard women want to be under the protection of a male, protection of some authority. And in the Genesis story, she became vulnerable and decept, open to deception to sin. So a woman, out from under the protection of her head, is vulnerable. And I believe this is so because of a woman's unique design. This is what makes, I think women are so they're so puzzling, but they're so beautiful, and they're so magnificent in so many ways. They're amazing creations of God. Apart from physical beauty, they have a great inner strength. And we heard this, right? And, and what the, all these mothers, what they were doing, what they sacrificed for their children. They have a great inner strength and beauty. They have a, a, a mind that sees things that the male mind simply cannot perceive. My wife sees things, and I'm like, what is that? Where did you get that from? And it, and it turns out she was right, and I hate telling her she's right. So we can delete that from this video, by the way. Just edit that out, that she was right. But they also have, they, they have, they have a sensibility about them, the passions, compassion, such as their tendency toward kindness and mercy and care. That's <laughs> just like, I'm indifferent to the situation, and she's acting in compassion. I'm like, duh, I should be doing that. But it's precisely because of that, that that women become more vulnerable when unprotected. And just as it's not good for man to be alone, it is also true it is not good for woman to be alone. There's a mutual interdependence. Women need to be under some form of male protection to protect them from deception. But there's something else I also want to draw your attention to that happened at the temptation in the Garden of Eden. When Eve got out from under the protection of Adam, she was vulnerable and then deceived and then she sinned. But watch what Paul says here. Adam was not deceived. Did you catch that? Adam was not deceived. Now Paul makes this point clearly in 1 Timothy 2.14. And Adam was not deceived. You see that? So get those puzzling looks off your faces. Adam was not deceived, okay? Now the question needs to be asked, of course, is this, and answered is why. Why wasn't he deceived? Well, it's kind of simple. She knew as well as he knew that what they were doing was wrong. But she didn't really know to the full extent, and she was the one who was initially deceived, so God says she was deceived. Now, if he was indeed with Eve watching this happen, which we believe he was, the text kind of says that, why did Adam then willingly go, go along with her? I think the answer is this. She sinned because she was deceived by Satan. He sinned because he couldn't live without her. Again, think of the intimacy that they had, the love that they had. How are they going to be fruitful multiply and fill the earth. She had become everything to him. 
There was no other competition. It was her. See, in that regard, women have great power over men. I think I've told you this story before. I'll tell it again. Uh, when my brother was living in Michigan and was coming down, wanted a new job, and my dad had connections in Ohio, and so he came down for an interview. Um, and we had always grown up playing golf together with my dad, and they were down there for I don't know how many days, but it was understood, and we talked about it and planned it, and the wives knew it. We were going to play golf one Saturday, play 18 holes, because we, we did it growing up. And now my brother wasn't home, and it was just doing what we used to do. Something got in the mind of my mom as she talked to my brother's wife that it was selfish for us to go play golf. Now, we had told them they knew about this and everything. And an argument broke out between my, my brother and my dad and, and their wives and so on. I'm just kind of watching. And they didn't cave, and we went to play golf. And it was a beautiful day, it was sunny, I was playing well, and we got to the ninth hole, and after the ninth hole, you make what's called the turn, where you go and get something to eat and drink, and you go play the back nine, so you play 18 holes. Well, we got to the ninth hole, and they were miserable. I didn't have any fun because of my mom and my brother's wife made it miserable for them. And so we went home. Now, I can go in my anger from zero to 100 pretty quickly if I want to, Okay? <laughs> Um, this wasn't that case. There was a slow boil going on from the 20 minutes it took to us to pack the, our golf stuff in the car to drive home. By the time I got home, I was a nuclear bomb ready to unload. Now, put this into perspective, this was like my sophomore or junior year. I'd been walking with the Lord. I had been, God used me to change people's lives in, in campus crusade and in college. I had more training experience than those two years my parents had in all their years of walking with the Lord. I was blessed, I was spirit-filled, and I had righteous anger in me, and I was going to let it out of my mom, and boy, I did. And she knew that she was wrong and I was right, and, and we went at each other, and I would not back down. And it, the thing about it is I had the Bible on my side, and I threw verse after verse after her to beat her into submission. It did no good. Even to this day, we joke about that, and she knew she was wrong, but why would she even do that? And the point is that it's simple. My point is simple. Women have great power over men. And I think that's what happened at the Garden of Eden. Now, if you think about the Garden of Eden, what's the lesson? And this is the key point here. When God's roles are reversed, okay, women stepping out from the protection of their head and leading, women are prone to deception and bad things happen, right? But something far worse than women being deceived happens when women step out from under the protection of men. Men are made weak. Men are made weak. You've heard the claim that when strong women emasculate men, you've heard that before? You're taking away a man's manhood. And when men are made weak, worse things happen. What happens? Well, if you miss in the Garden of Eden, what happened? Adam became weak, followed along, and we were all corrupt now. The whole human race went down with Adam. If you mess with God's divine order, chaos ensues. And in this case, the chaos is unending. Now, let me give you another Old Testament example of this female empowerment weakening men. And by the way, if you take some time and think about this, have you ever known a married couple, and they may still be married, but you have a, a strong-willed wife, maybe a, a passive husband, can you picture that in your mind? They stay married. I've watched this over the years. The woman seems to get stronger, and the man seems to get weaker and weaker and weaker. Turn to Isaiah chapter 3, if you would. Toward the middle of the Bible, Isaiah chapter 3. This is a, um, illustrates, again, this idea of, of female empowerment weakening men. 
Isaiah chapter three is a chapter of coming judgment. And verse 13 says this, that the Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. Well, why? Well, amongst the, all of the sins of the people and the leaders and, and so on, God says this in verse 12. Isaiah three twelve. O oh, my people, their oppressors are children and women rule over them. O oh, my people, those who guide you, lead you astray, and confuse the direction of your paths. Now the nation is so weak and so vulnerable, who is oppressing them? Children. (laughs) And women rule over the people. The question is this, well where are the ruling men, right? Where are they? Well God gives us the answer when we look at uh, the judgment on women in verses 16 to 26. And this is God's judgment on the women. Look at verse, sorry, verse 16. Moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet. Now, what does that mean? What's he talking about here? Well, women, they're stepping out of the God-ordained boundaries of their own husband's authority and they're putting themselves on display for others with seduction in mind. You see that? Verse 17, therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In other words, you do this, women, step out of the protection of your husband, I'm gonna make you bald. In judgment. Why? Well, think about it. Hair is a woman's glory. Remember Paul talked about that to the Corinthians? Women, to submit to their husbands and wear head coverings in church or bring shame on themselves. If you're not going to do that, bring shame on yourself and do what? Shave your head. It's not shameful for a man to be bald. But it's, it's even our society today. If a woman has cancer and they're to go bald, what do they do? You put on a wig, okay? It's not so much for a man. So a a sign of the hair is a sign of glory for a woman. And the glory is there, by the way, to make the man look good. Look at verse 18 now. In that day the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, take a breath, Nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. What the heck? The women of Judah, they've gone to great lengths to draw attention to themselves. I mean, that's a pretty extensive list of clothing and jewelry and accessories, is it not? What do you think women have larger, they they take up most of space in closets. There you go. Right? What they should have done is humbled themselves in modesty and discretion under the headship of their husband and give honor to him because man's the glory of God and woman's the glory of men. And we all know, as men, we need a lot of help from women to make us look good. There we go. Finally, somebody got that joke and said it. Good. Erica, go to the bathroom, put the makeup on, make me look good, girl. I need help. But the unfortunate thing is you get to verses 24 through 26. This is God's judgment, verse 24. As if being bald as a woman isn't bad enough. Now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of a well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. This is a picture of a conquered people being led away into slavery. This is specifically because of what these women have done. And it gets worse. Here we find where the men have gone. I said, where are the men? The women and children are, are, children are oppressing, women are ruling. Where are the men? Look at verse 25. Your men will fall by the sword and your mighty ones in battle. When women take over a culture, 
men become weak. You saw it in the Garden of Eden, and now you're seeing it here in Isaiah chapter 3. When men become weak, they can be conquered, even the strong men. And this is nothing more than what happened in the Garden of Eden. Women desiring to dominate men, and men becoming weak, and the fallout is disastrous. How bad does it get? Look at verse 26. And her gates will lament and mourn and desert it, and she will sit on the ground. That means the city, that's the gates, and so on, will mourn as it is conquered. When all the men have been slaughtered, these rebellious women who refused to submit to their husbands and instead stepped out from under their husband's protection and blatantly disobeyed God's divine order of authority and relationships, they will sit there with all their seductive clothing and jewelry conquered because they have overpowered their protectors. I defined biblical masculinity as what? Lead, provide for, and protect, and they're no more. See, empowering women make men weak, and weak men make everybody vulnerable to danger. Now, let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, 9 through 15. And I think that that will make more sense to you now. In verse 9, Paul instructs women to adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. That is the opposite of Isaiah 3, isn't it? I didn't get an amen from the women in that one, guys, did I? That's the opposite of Isaiah 3, what we just read. The modest dress, respectable apparel, modesty, self-control. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Women are to be identified because they dress in an inappropriate manner for worship. Namely with modesty and discretion or self-control. In other words, women were to dress in a way that did not call attention to themselves. Since women wore a robe at this time in history, from their neck to the floor, the only way they could display wealth would be in the quality of the garment they were wearing. But they would also weave gold and pearls in their, and braid them in, in their hair to display their wealth, calling attention to themselves. And Paul discourages this practice. Instead, he says, Practice godliness manifested by good works. Look at verse 10. But with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, what kind of good works are we talking about here? Well, verse 11 is the answer. Here's your good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Women are called to modesty, discretion, godliness, and good works. Specifically, they learn quietly with all submissiveness. This is how women conduct themselves in church. This is what Paul is saying here. Now Paul goes even further to describe what all submissiveness means. Look at verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now if this reads as extreme, and I read it, it seems extreme to me. It's because Paul is using very strong language, I believe, on purpose. What Paul means and what the church has practiced, again, for most of its history is this, that women do not preach or teach or hold a leading position in the church. Well, why? Well, this was designed by God in creation. We went through that. Man is the head and the woman is the helper. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So this is not just Paul's opinion. He's referencing what Moses wrote. And not only is it God's divine order initiated at creation, it's also affirmed when Adam and Eve fell into sin. That's verse 14. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. This is a strong warning from Paul. The role of women in this authority-submission partnership, and by the way, every relationship you have, there's an authority-submission partnership or relationship. Did you know that? Okay, there's the... Obviously, there's the husband and wife, okay? We, went over, we talked about this. 
parent-child, right? Employer-employee, okay? Government-to-citizen, honor those in authority, right? Submit to those in authority. And there's the, the church, the leadership, the congregation. Hebrews talks about that. So every possible relationship, there is this authority submission principle that's in there, okay? And in the church, Paul is bringing all this out and saying that the role of women in this authority submission partnership was designed by God in creation and confirmed in the fall. But the question is, where does that leave women then? Well, that's verse 15. That's where it ties into being mothers. And it's something that doesn't make any sense to me until I studied it. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, obviously, do you, anyone here think that a woman can be saved through childbearing? There's a funny story John MacArthur tells, true story. He was in Bucharest. I think it was either after communism fell or the wall fell down and he was able to go into Bucharest to these pastors in this church very godly congregation, and he had all these children. And when he, he referenced this verse and talked about that obviously women can't be saved through childbearing, a deadly silence fell over this church. They actually thought that women were saved through childbearing. So they were having 14, 15 kids. It's like these women kind of, when their eyes were open, they were like, look at their husbands, like of all the verses that you misinterpreted, you did this one, right? Anyways, so what does Paul mean when he says that a woman is, yet women will be saved through childbearing? Well, it's simply this. A woman's high calling is to save herself from the stigma of the fall. Because she, Eve, your representative, led the race into sin by being deceived, a woman reverses that by raising godly children. This is the highest and most influential life possible for a woman. And as you would expect today, our enemy Satan, who opposes everything God has created, naturally in this world that he now controls, a woman raising children is frowned upon in society. For the sole reason, I believe, because it is the high calling of being a woman. Since men are in charge in the church, the balance is women get to have babies. Women get to hold and nurse and nurture children by spending most of their time with children in their most formative years. There's a depth of influence at that level that no man or no father will ever have with his children. And it's a wonderful and marvelous privilege that women have. This is the high calling of motherhood. And I said it before, I'll say it again. My children are who they are in large part to mean over 50% of it is because of my wife. But I want you to notice this here, and this is, this is for, for, for women. It's done with self-control, you see that? if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I mean, you're going to find here, I don't have time because we're running out of time, but here in other verses, women are called to exercise self-control. Well, what does that mean? What kind of self-control is Paul talking about here? Well, because the impulse of your fallen nature is to do what, women? Rule over your husband, to dominate him, right? There's Don Cruzon, he is shaking his head with a big smile on his face. Absolutely, yeah. All right. Resist the desire to compete with him. Exercise self-control by submitting to your husband's God-given authority in faith, love, and holiness through the raising of godly children. And you also have to exercise self-control because your husband's not perfect. I gotta get an amen from the women in this one, right? Not, they're not perfect. Someone laughed, they got it, good, good. There will always be 
plenty of reasons, wives and women, for you to be tempted to get, to get power in your relationship with your husband. And this is why he says, so persevere. He says, if you continue. Continue in what? Submission to your husband. Exercise self-control. Resist the urge to take control. Now, I want to close with this. One final word. God doesn't want everyone to be married. Okay? There's a gift of singleness, 1 Corinthians 7. And sometimes, even married couples, God doesn't give them children. It doesn't affect or change a woman's value or her, her role. She is still a co-heir in Christ. But as a general principle, the high calling of women is to raise godly children because as a grace of all influences... You are here because most of you said that shared about your mothers of their influence in your life. Okay? I'm going to close with this brief story. The guys, you know, the base, the greatest basketball player of my generation is not LeBron James. To me, it's Michael Jordan. Became probably the most recognized and popular and wealthiest sports athlete ever. He's a billionaire by now. What he did was magical. A few years ago, they did, uh, the ESPN or HBO did a series called The Last Dance. Do you, ever, do you ever watch that or see that? And it was the story of the Chicago Bulls. Uh, they won seven out of ten uh, NBA championships. One of the greatest dynasties ever. And The Last Dance was about the last year they got together and when Jordan came back and they won a championship. Well, they were interviewing Michael Jordan and he was sitting in his, one of his houses in his white chair, I believe it was, and he had a, a cigar in one hand and his, his, his alcoholic liquor in the other hand. And you're watching him and, and you're seeing him being interviewed. And then the, uh, as the interview goes on, uh, there's no more cigar and there's no more alcohol. And so the question was asked online, what happened to the, the smoking and the drinking? You know what happened? Michael's mom called and said, that is not a good look. Don't do it. And Michael obeyed mom. The power of motherhood. Amen for that one? Yeah. Amen. All right. So, obviously, simply, honor mothers today. Can you get an amen from that one? Yeah. Amen. All right. Let's stand. Let's close the song this morning. And before we close, we have some flowers that Roger, or you need help with that, Roger? I want all the mothers to stand. Actually, everyone sit down except the mothers. Stand if you're a mother. I want to give you a flower. Richard, can you help pass these out with, with Roger? We want to give you a flower for today. To honor you. And so we can applause. Thank you, mothers. Just one, Tracy. Come on. There are plenty of mothers. Over here, Roger. You put it. Debbie's trying to take two as well. Don't feel bad. Fathers, don't worry about it. We're going to be passing out um, car keys when we do this for Father's Day, okay? All right. Say, there we go. Well, all right, she'll get the leftovers. How's that? Right. So. Oh, don't tell her that. I want to tell her what you said. How's that? Right. She should get them all. Yeah, not the leftovers. Okay, not the leftovers. So. And that's in part for putting up with me, right? Amen. Amen to that one. Okay. <laughs> Judy will be free this afternoon. She's not coming over for Mother's Day, so she can see her now if you want. So. All right. Let's pray this close of the song. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for our mothers.
And thank you for this, this sermon. It's, it's hard to understand, but it's, it's still good nonetheless. Bless our day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.